0: The scripture today is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Uh, We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. As, uh, though who, as though you have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For, for sin uh, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of God.
1: Amen, amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning. Salt Church, how are we? Morning. Uh, Somebody's awake over here. Uh, My name is Jonathan Randall. I'm uh, one of the pastors on staff here and so glad to have you guys with us this morning. If you do have a Bible or a phone app, you can flip the pages, swipe what you need to to get to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be in the passage uh, you just heard. This morning, we're actually going to start a brand new teaching series where we're going to be going over Romans chapter 6 through If you were with us uh, in the spring, we actually went through the first five chapters of Romans. You can go to our website or where we upload all of our sermons. I encourage you to check out the teaching on that. But if I were to sum up Romans uh, chapters 1 through 5, I would say that they simply teach the gospel. They simply teach what Jesus has accomplished for us But chapters 6 through 8, what we're going to cover, they teach what we do in response to the gospel. How do we live now that Jesus has accomplished this life for us? And so we titled uh, Romans uh, 1 through 5 when we did that series, Justified by Faith, or How Can You Be Made Right with God? Uh, This series, Romans uh, 6 through 8, we titled Sanctified by Faith, or How Can You Begin to Live Rightly with God? So that's kind of where we're going to go over the next few weeks. Let me begin by this way. Uh, One of the more interesting things that I think about Christianity in America is that it has a very weird subculture right? Like Christianity in America has like its own music, it has its own clothing, it has its own branding, it has its own fried chicken, uh, and it's all kind of like super cheesy if you ask me, right? And I think one of the cheesiest things uh, in the Christian American subculture is bumper stickers. Christians love their bumper stickers, and so I thought it'd be fun uh, to go over some examples of these. You can put that first one up on the screen. So this one says, enjoy Jesus Christ, thou shall never thirst. I guess it's okay to plagiarize uh, Coca-Cola. You can go uh, to the next one. Honk if you love Jesus, text if you want to meet him. (laughs) I mean, I can't believe the government hasn't used that as a public service announcement, right? I mean, come on, it's perfect. Uh, All right, go to the next one. This fish won't fry, will you? (laughs) Turn or burn evangelism, right, at its finest. All right, go to the next one. Let us taco about Jesus. For all of you people who love puns in here, it's perfect. All right, go to the next one. Save gas, walk with Jesus. It's like perfect for the environmentalist in the room, right? All right, go to the next one. Jesus is my airbag. You know, in case you do want to text and drive and meet Jesus, literally, literally. All right, go to the next one. Are you following Jesus this closely? It's like passive aggressive, like almost, right? Makes me want to run you off the road. All right, go to the next one. This is for all you Gen Z people out there. He is, he is risen with the R-I-Z-Z. So for all you Gen Z people, I, I'm not Gen Z. I legit had to Google this the word riz is short for charisma or uh, being able to charm people. And so there's kind of a play on words there. So for all of you non-Gen Z people, Jackson in the back who's Gen Z is like, I'm going to buy that literally right after this gather." All right, go to the next one. Jesus loves you, but I am his favorite. I don't know that. I don't think that's biblical, um, you know, but whatever. Um, I got all these bumper stickers from the back of Keith's truck, by the way. So if you need an expert on cheesy Christian bumper stickers, Keith is your guide. All right, let me give you one more because I think this sets up where I want to go this morning. Not perfect, just forgiven. You guys ever seen that or heard that before? Not perfect, just forgiven. Because the problem with this bumper sticker is that it's only half right. It's only half right. True, according to the Bible, you are not just forgiven. You're forgiven and you're also redeemed. You're forgiven and you're adopted into the family of God. You're, rede- you're uh, forgiven and you're made righteous. You are forgiven and you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. You're forgiven and you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Those are all biblical truths about you if you're a Christian. See, Jesus doesn't just save you from the penalty of sin. He saves you from the power of sin. Jesus doesn't just want to cleanse you. He also wants to change you. And this matters for us this morning because I am convinced that so many of us expect so little out of our Christian life, right? Like we get the whole forgiveness thing, right? Like Jesus forgives my sins. Yes and amen, but then we're just kind of like content to live the American dream and just wait until we get to heaven and get to meet Jesus one day. And that's, that's we're just going to settle for that as the Christian life. And I just want to say, guys, that Jesus wants to give you so much more. Jesus doesn't just want to give you heaven. He wants to make you holy. We often ask the question around here at Salt Church, if you were to die tonight and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? It's a great question. I don't want to stop stop asking that question here at Salt Church. And, And by the way, the answer to that is Jesus. It's only Jesus. That's how you're getting into heaven. But I'd like to maybe add this question to our culture. If you were to wake up tomorrow morning and God were to ask you, is Jesus changing the way that you live right now? How would you respond? Salt Church, I think some of us have lived a malnourished Christian life because we prayed a prayer to accept Jesus into our heart, but then we haven't let him begin to change the way that we live. Others of us, we might have given up on Christianity altogether or given up on fighting sin and fighting temptation because we look at our track record and we see all of our failures and we wonder, is change even possible? Can Jesus actually make me a different person? To you this morning, I want to give you hope that what Jesus is offering you is better than anything you could ever ask for or imagine. Jesus doesn't just want to improve your life. He wants to give you a whole new identity, an identity that will change you from the inside out. So with that, let's dive into our text. I have two simple action texts for us this morning that I think is going to lead us into the life that Jesus has for us. I want to take a look at the first one. Know who you are. Know who you are. How do we do that? Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. So Romans uh, 6.1 has these two questions. It says, what shall we say then? Or actually, sorry, it's got three questions. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul asks this question right out of the gate because he knows that it's a question that somebody's going to want to ask after he's just taught Romans 1 through 5. In fact, this is a question that often gets asked in Paul's ministry, and it's this idea that, hey, if Jesus forgives my sins, then does it really matter how I live? Can't I just sin a bunch? And Jesus is just going to forgive that. In fact, maybe I should sin more because then that would mean I'd get more forgiveness. I'd get more grace. Does it even matter how we live if Jesus is just going to forgive our sins? That's the, that's the question that Paul is asking here. And his shorthand answer that he gives right out of the gate is by no means. This is, a, this is like the strongest way, possible way you could say the word no. It's basically saying H-E, double hockey sticks, no. Like, that's, that's basically what Paul is getting after here, right? I love the way the King James uh, Version translates it. It says, God forbid. God forbid that this is what you would do. In other words, grace and forgiveness of sins is not a license for you to just keep on sinning in your life. It does matter how you live. And for the next 10 verses, Paul is going to explain why his answer is no to that question. But before I get to that explanation, I want to ask you the question. How would you answer the question that Paul proposes in verse one? If someone were to come to you and say, if Jesus forgives my sins, then it doesn't matter how I live. I can just keep sinning. How would you respond to that person? And make no mistake, if this question, if this idea isn't coming up in Salt Church, if there aren't people among us right now thinking, oh, well, if Jesus forgives my sins and I can live how I want, if that doesn't exist in our church right now, guys, we're not preaching the gospel that the New Testament preaches. Like, we can't make grace safe. We have to preach the scandalousness of it. We can't preach and and fear that people are going to abuse grace. They did it to Paul. So that why would we think we're any different? So again, how would we answer this question? I know for me, uh, I'd want to answer something like this. Well, you can't just live how you want, right? You, you can't just keep sinning because sin ultimately, at the end of the day, it hurts people, right? It's not loving. It's, it's bad for our society. It's, it's never going to completely satisfy you and give you purpose and meaning and significance. That's probably how I would want to answer that. But I want us to to like dial in on this text because that's not the way Paul answers the question. Paul basically is gonna spend 10 verses saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. And it's this, that the reason we shouldn't just keep on sinning in the Christian life is because that's not who you are. So often the Bible, or uh, so often Bible teachers will say something like this. Yes, Jesus saves you, but now you go live the Christian life by following the instructions that Christ has given. And I just want to tweak that just a bit, because what I think the Bible actually teaches is this. Yes, Jesus saves you, But now go live the Christian life by fulfilling your identity that Christ has already given you. The Christian life is not about achieving something that you're trying to attain. It's about receiving something that Christ has already earned. That's the majority of the Christian life. In other words, what Paul is trying to do here is he's not focusing on so much of, hey, this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do as a Christian and and that's the key to the Christian life. No, he's gonna focus on know who you are. That's the key to living the Christian life. Notice the amount of times in this text he uses the word know. Verse three, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus and we're baptized into his death? Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Verses eight and nine. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. See, the main point that Paul is trying to drive home is that we can't just think that, oh, we can sin because that means we get grace. And in the end, if we think that, if we live that way of like, oh, it doesn't matter how I live, I can just keep on sinning because I'm going to get grace, then it's proof that we don't actually know who we are. And Paul knows that the only way to actual change is to be reminded constantly of who we are. One of my favorite movies uh, is Hook uh, with Robin Williams. Uh, He's uh, Peter Pan and uh, Maggie Smith from Harry Potter. Uh, She plays uh, Wendy and uh, I love this movie so much as a kid, I actually dressed up as uh, Peter Pan. The whole tights and the, the, the green and the, I, they had a gold sword for Peter in that movie. I literally bought like the plastic version of that uh, and was dressed up for Halloween. Don't make fun. It was awesome. Uh, anyway, there's a scene early in this movie uh, where Robin Williams, Peter Pan, doesn't know who he is. He's living in the real world. He doesn't know who he is. And Wendy is trying to get him to remember that he is Peter Pan. And finally, in her frustration, she just stops the conversation. He says, Peter, don't you know who you are? And then she opens up a book and shows him a picture of Peter Pan. Is that's what Paul is doing for us in this chapter? He's like Wendy shouting at us. Don't you know who you are? Why would you think that you can live in sin? It's not just that sin is bad. That's just not who you are anymore. And so he writes Romans 6 as a picture of who we are. And so the question is, who are we, (laughs) right? Let's define this. What does Paul want us to know specifically about ourselves? The answer to that question, I think, is found in verse 11. It says this. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, in Christ Jesus. So who are we? What do we need to know about ourselves? It's this. We're dead to sin, we're alive to God, and we're in Christ Jesus. Let me break this down uh, so that we can understand this. The first thing we need to know about ourselves is that we are dead to sin. In verse 2, Paul kind of gives this rhetorical question, right? He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, if we don't want to live in sin, then it's really important that we ask the question, what does it mean to have died to sin? And I think this is a vastly crucial question for us to answer in the church, because I think so many people think that the minute you become a Christian, sin is all of a sudden just dead to you, right? Like, oh, I'm a Christian now. I don't struggle with sin anymore. I don't, the, the, the temptation to sin just kind of grows weaker and almost disappears in my life, that I won't have desires to want to sin anymore. That's what we think when we come to know Jesus. But guys, that's not been my experience. And I don't think that's the apostle Paul's experience. If you, We're going to cover this, but in the next chapter, Paul says something to the effect of, yeah, the things that I, I, I want to do, I don't do them. And the things I don't want to do, sin, I just keep on doing. And he's a Christian when he's writing that. So, so clearly, that, 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 that can't be what it means, Right? I know for me, when I became a Jesus follower and I became a Christian, it seemed like temptations and the desire to sin increased in my life. And it's not because temptation became more and more a thing. It's just, I was now had different uh, way of seeing the world and I saw sin more in my life than I did before I was following Jesus. So what does it mean to be dead to sin? I think the simple uh, answer to that is being dead to sin means that it's ruling power has been broken. Sin's ruling power has been broken. Let me use an analogy to uh, spell this out. Think of it like this. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation and he freed the slaves in the middle of the Civil War. Now, this did not mean that all of a sudden, the U.S. rounded up all the slave masters and killed them. This did not mean that racism all of a sudden just disappeared in our country. It did mean that slaves were now free. But here's the thing. It's one thing to know that you're legally free. It's another thing to live that way. I mean, imagine the slaves who were born into slavery. They had known day after day after day uh, the life of a slave, and then all of a sudden they're free? Can you imagine them walking down the street and then running into their former slave master. What that would do mentally to them. they would, Their palms would begin to sweat. They would cower in fear. They'd wonder, is this slave master going to start bossing me around and using his power over me, right? How many freed slaves struggled to believe that they didn't have to listen to their master anymore? That they no longer had ruling power over them? That their identity was no longer a slave but free, right? And so if a slave went back to the... The plantation and started living a slave's life under the rule of a slave master, I don't know if I would go to that person and be like, hey, stop living like a slave. I'd go to that person and say, don't you know that you're free? The same is true for us as Christians. Because right now we are free from the power of sin if we've trusted in Christ. That doesn't mean the presence of sin is gone. Sin is still the same old thing, it's still going to do the run the same playbook against you temptation desire all of that stuff is still present but here's the thing sin may be the same old thing but you are not the same old you You are not the same old you if you choose to sin and we will our job is not to convince you hey stop living like a sinner i'm going to call you back to this is not who you are You're free Sure, sin sin is an old master. He's gonna walk around trying to control you. But the contract that says sin owned you has been ripped to shreds. You're free. You're not a slave, guys. That's what Romans six seven says. For the one who has died, died to what? Died to sin. Has been set free from sin. The first thing we need to know about ourselves is that we are dead to sin. But that's not the only thing. You're also alive to God. You're alive to God as a Christian. You're not just dead to something, you're alive for something, right? You're not, a, you're not a zombie where you're like half alive, you're a whole new person. And the second half of verse 4 says this, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What does it mean to walk in the newness of life? Well, if to be dead to sin means that the power of sin is broken, then to be alive to God means that you have power over sin in your own life. You have, it's not just that the ruling power of sin is broken, you also now have power over sin in your life. See, when you become a Christian, you don't just get the perfect record of Christ on you. That's Romans 1 through 5. But Romans 1 through 6 is gonna teach that the power of the resurrection is in you. Guys, what that means is that when you come to Jesus and, and you give your life to him, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and has that kind of power lives in you. Do you understand that? Like the same spirit that gave Jesus the power to conquer the grave has given you the same power to conquer sin in your own life. The same power that gave life back to Jesus can give life life Back to you. Because there's this misconception in the church that eternal life begins after you die and go to heaven. It doesn't. Eternal life begins right now. That's biblical. John 17:3 says, This is eternal life, that you may know the one true God and his son Jesus Christ. Can you know Jesus right now? Yes, which means eternal life can start right now. Now don't get me wrong, when you die physically, You're going to be raised to new life, a physical body. There's going to be a physical resurrection if you've trusted in Christ. But right now, if you trust in Christ right now, there is a spiritual resurrection. You're being renewed inwardly day by day until eventually when you go home to glory, you're going to be renewed completely. That's the song we just sang, right? The resurrected king is resurrecting me. It doesn't say the resurrected king will resurrect me. The resurrection is a process. It starts when you come to know Jesus, and it will end when we go home to glory. Now, some might want to say, well, John, I get all that, but it certainly doesn't feel like I have power over sin in my life. Like, it seems like sin constantly gets the best of me, and then I'm just giving in. And if that's you this morning, I just want to give you hope and let you know that the power of the resurrection cannot be stopped. The the resurrection will eventually have its full effect. Sure, sin may get the best of you sometimes. Sin may overpower you sometimes. Sin sin may uh, knock you down a few times, right? But in the end, the resurrection has the last word. Because the Holy Spirit is never taken someone and crossed them into heaven and said, here you go, God, and been like, oops, I did not make that person completely holy. (laughs) Like that, the Holy Spirit's never failed at his job. If he can raise Jesus from the dead, he can make you completely righteous, completely holy. He can take the power of sin and remove it completely from your life. How do we know that the power of the resurrection in us will never be stopped? Because of verse nine. It says, we know that Christ... Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because the resurrection of Jesus is unique in history. He's not like Lazarus who just came back from the dead, right? Lazarus was basically a resuscitation. Lazarus was going to die again one day. Jesus rose to a whole new state where he's never going to die again. The main weapon that sin uses against us is death. And Jesus has risen to a place where sin can no longer use that weapon against him because he can never die. Why do we think that Jesus is going to do anything less with us? If Jesus is going to rise us to a place and resurrect us to a place where sin is never going to be able to use death against us ever again, why do we doubt him in that process now? The resurrection will have the final word. There is no sin or temptation that a good resurrection cannot cure. The power you have right now is the same power that Jesus had when he overcame death. That means there's no sin that's ever going to be able to completely overcome you. It may get in a few uh, knockdowns now, but eventually it will be rooted out. How is all this possible? How can we be dead to sin and alive to God? It's because we're united with Christ. That's what that word in Christ means. Every time you see the word in Christ in your Bible, it's talking about our union with Jesus. Our union with Jesus means that what is true of Jesus is true of us. It's like a marriage, right? When you get married and you're united, what belongs to your spouse now belongs to you, right? It's, it's, like, a, it's like a tree if you were going to ingraft a branch, right? And the branch is dead and now is made alive by the life of the tree. Everything that belongs to the tree now belongs to the branch. Because the same is true for us. If we have put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. What belongs to him belongs to us. Everything about his life is now our life. This means that his death on the cross becomes our death to sin. Your past no longer defines you. We're now defined by Jesus' sacrifice for sin. His resurrection from the grave becomes our walk in newness of life. You're no longer doomed to an uncertain future. You're now destined for a resurrection. This is why Paul brings up baptism in this text. Because baptism doesn't unite you to Christ, but it does represent that you have been united to Christ. Think about what the actual action represents. When you go under the water, you're saying, I am dead to sin. I'm dead to my old life. And when you come up out of the water, you're saying, this is me walking in the newness of life. This is me alive to God, living the resurrected life. This is who you are. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. You're in Christ. And Paul says in verse 11, to consider yourselves this way. Or some translations will say count it as so." Other translations will say "reckon." The idea is that this is an, an accounting term. If I gave you a million dollars, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to count it, make sure that I'm not lying to you, right? And I think the reason that is is be, and, and like how, why this Paul uses this word specifically is because I think we would look at this and we believe that's too good to be true. I'm really dead to sin. I'm really alive to God. I'm really in Christ. What belongs to him belongs to me. Yes, count it. It's in your bank account. Count every single day what you have in Jesus. Guys, the longer I I have followed Jesus, I realize that so much of the Christian life isn't me trying to like learn something new or like discover different things. It's by counting and remembering and reckoning what I already know to be true. So often it's easy to believe that it's not. One of the most uh, uh, life-changing books uh, for me outside of the Bible, of course, uh, is a book called The Hole in Our Holiness uh, by Kevin DeYoung. Uh, It's literally top five uh, for me. I totally recommend reading it. And he has this to say. I think this quote will be on the screen as well. If I had to summarize New Testament ethics in one sentence, here's how I would put it. Be who you are. That may sound strange, almost heretical, given our cultural's emphasis on being true to yourself. But like so many of the worst errors in the world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted. When people say, relax, you were born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not and just be the real you, they're stumbling upon something very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you he's talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. You may want to read through that last sentence again, because the difference between living in sin and living in righteousness depends on getting that sentence right. God doesn't say, relax, you were born this way. But he does say, good news, you were reborn another way. Know who you are. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. You're in Christ Jesus. Consider it so. Now, Paul doesn't just leave us there. It's one thing to know who we are. It's another thing to begin to have victory over sin. So that's where Paul is going to go next. It's my final point this morning. Second point is live who you are. Know who you are. Live who you are. How do we live who we are? Conform yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Conform yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Romans 6 Uh, 12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay, so Paul, for those first few verses, is saying, hey, we need to know who we are, that we're dead to sin, that we're alive to God in Christ. Now he's going to shift and say, hey, live out who you are. If you're dead to sin, don't let sin dominate you. If you're alive to God, then do what is right. Don't just consider this your identity, but begin to work and have it conform to who you really are. How do we do that? Well, the answer is found in the key word or in a key word that I think is found in verse 12. It's the word passions, passions. Some of your translations will call that word lust. But I don't think that's always helpful because in English, when we hear the word lust, we automatically think of sexual sins. But the word passions there means uh, desires or super desires or overdrive desires that have gone out of control. Which means the word passions there can mean sexual sins, but it can mean But that's not the only thing it means. It can mean a lot of different things. And I think this is incredibly helpful because I know I've counseled a lot of young men who are convinced that, oh, if I can just conquer my sexual sins, if I can just conquer my addiction to pornography, then I won't have sin anymore. And they don't see that they're still filled with anger and jealousy and pride and selfishness and laziness, much of which is probably causing their pornography addiction. See, sin doesn't just start with bad deeds it starts with bad desires. And this changes the way that we look at how sin tempts us. When we're tempted, we aren't just tempted to do bad things. We're tempted to take good things and desire them above all else, including God. Because we can do this with anything, Right? We can do this with sex, right? If we desire sex over and above what God says about it, that it's between a man and a woman in the confines of marriage, if we desire sex so much that we're willing to reject that, then we're obeying sin's passions. When we put our desire for finances over and above trusting God, if we believe that money and uh, what it can buy is the key to happiness. And we, our whole life's just now become about getting money and not trusting God, guys, then we've obeyed sin's passions. When we put our desire for our kids' happiness over our, our responsibility as a parent, if we make our kids our ultimate purpose in life and we live for them over and above God, if we turn our kids into little gods, guys, we've obeyed sin's passions. You See how this works? Sin ends with an outward behavior, but it starts with an inward desire. It starts when passions are out of balance and we end up elevating good things into God things and we can't live without them. So much so that they begin to control the way that we live rather than letting Christ control the way that we live. So what do we do? Well, the irony of the answer is that we fight desire with desire. We fight sin's passions with a passion for righteousness, Because you can't just rip out a desire for sin. You also have to replace it with an even stronger desire to do good. We can't just cripple our desire for sin. We also have to cultivate new desires to live for God, right? And we see this principle all over the place, right? If you want to eat healthy, you can't just cut out sugar and carbs. You also have to develop a taste for vegetables and uh, fruits, right? If we want to have a garden, you can't just pull weeds. You also have to plant some flowers and some plants. The same is true for us if we want to grow as a Christian. We can't just say no to unrighteousness. We also have to say yes to righteousness. And the way we get there is what Paul spells out in verse 13. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Because when Paul uses the word members there, he's talking about your body parts. He's talking about your mind, your heart, your feet, your hands, your eyes, your mouth, your arms, your legs, your stomach, and even your toes. He's talking about everything. If we it's what we think about, it's what we meditate on, it's the places we go, it's the career that we have, it's the resources we possess, it's the things we watch and we take in, it's the things we send out and say to others. That's what Paul is talking about here. A member is every part of who you are. The idea that Paul is trying to get across here is that God wants to control every part of who you are. I love what one pastor prays over his kids. And I think it's a prayer that honestly, we should adopt for ourselves. He prays this over his kids. God, strengthen their minds. Give them clear thoughts and creative ideas that could change the world. God opened their eyes to see her beauty and the best in others, to look away from impurity, but to never look away from injustice. God opened their ears to hear the gospel and opened their heart to believe it. God opened their mouths to speak wisdom, not foolishness, blessing, not cursing. God, prepare their shoulders to carry the burdens of others with gentleness and kindness. God, give them a backbone to stand against the wicked ways of this world. God, strengthen their arms for the work that you have for them. God, open their hands for the hurting and the hungry. God, strengthen their feet to be able to walk through the hills and the valleys of life. And God, guide their footsteps in your will and in your word. I think this is a prayer that we should adopt over ourselves. But my question to you is, if you were to pray this prayer, what part of your life would you leave off? What part would you say, God, I don't know if you can have control over that. I don't know if you want to own that part. I don't know if I want you to own that part of me. Maybe this morning, Jesus is calling you to lay down that part of your life and give Jesus ultimate control over the members of your life. Now, we should pray, but Paul also says that we should present ourselves, right? He says, present yourselves as those who have been brought from death to life. So much of conforming to your identity in Christ is just showing up. You can't say you're a person who works out and then never goes to the gym. You can't say that you're a student at UNC and then never show up for your classes. You can't say you're a hunter and then never kill anything. You gotta go take out an elk or a deer, right? The same is true for us as a Christian. You cannot say that you follow Jesus if you're not showing up every single day, presenting yourself to God and say, God, today, I wanna say no to unrighteousness and I wanna say yes to righteousness. Now, let me be clear, I'm not saying you're saved by your ability to fight sin. But what I am saying is that if you are saved, you have the ability to fight sin. The question is, is are you showing up to fight? Because the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning your salvation. But now that you've been saved, put some effort into it because God has given you the power to conquer sin. I think so many of us have this mentality in the church of let go and let God, I can just sit and holiness is just gonna be downloaded into me. The Bible does not teach that. You've gotta present yourself, show up. Is God gonna do the work in you? Yes. Is his power sufficient for you? Yes. But you're never gonna grow strong if you don't start working out. You're never gonna grow unless you start building some muscles and presenting yourself. Now, hear me, this doesn't mean all of a sudden sin's not going to be a struggle. No, you're going to struggle with sin. You're going to struggle with sin until you die. But here's the thing. If we have no desire to fight sin at all, if we've just given up on the fight and struggle with sin and just say, well, that's just who I am. I'm a sinner. I'm going to give in. I'm just going to give up on fighting that. then, guys, that's probably an indication that you don't know who you are. You're not actually dead to sin. You're not actually alive to God. You're not actually in Christ. And today would today be the day that you place your faith in Christ so that you can know who you are. Because the New Testament just does not have a category for a Christian who is just forgiven. Every person Jesus forgives, he will also transform. Let me close with this. Uh, Back in the fourth and fifth century, uh, there was a a theologian named Augustine or Augustine, and whether or not you know who this guy is, um, he's probably played a role in your Christian life, because he has influenced so many of generations of Christians. He's probably influenced the people that led you to Christ and has influenced us uh, in this church, even as he's influenced my theology. But the thing I love about Augustine is not just his theology, but his story. Uh, Augustine uh, recounts his own life growing up and how uh, he was not a Christian uh, growing up and his life was marked by rebellion and selfishness and one of his sin struggles was sensuality. In fact, Augustine would frequently visit uh, brothels and um, he was known to be promiscuous. And after years, his mother, Monica, was praying for him that he would receive Jesus. At the age of 31, Augustine finally became a Christian. And not too long after his conversion, Augustine was walking in a city that he was familiar with, and he happened to be walking by a brothel. And one of the girls that he would frequently visit ran out to him and said, Augustine. And Augustine put his head down and began to keep walking. She's confused at this point, And so she begins to uh, keep pace with him and walk after him. And, and she's saying, Augustine, Augustine, Augustine. And, and he's ignoring her until finally she shouts out, Augustine. Don't you know it's me? And Augustine finally pauses. He stops. He turns around and he says, I know, but it's not me. I know, but it's not me. I love that story because I think it's a perfect example. It's a lived out reality of somebody who knew who they were in Christ. They were living out who they were. I pray that this story would be true of us in Salt Church, that when sin comes calling this week and says, don't you know, it's me, would we be able to respond with, yes, I know, but it's not me. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Conform yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, if there's anything that's been said from this stage that doesn't match what you say in scripture, God, I just pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But God, the truth that Paul does get after in Romans 6, God, I pray that by your spirit, it would begin to become a reality in our heart. God, every single one of us in this room is gonna leave here, And sin is going to run out its old playbook, the same playbook it's been running since the garden with Adam and Eve, with temptations and desires, putting things on a hook, promising life, but bringing death, taking us further than we ever wanted to go. Sin is going to run its old playbook. But I pray for every single person in here this morning, that if they've placed their faith in Jesus, they have a different playbook to run. They don't don't have to live in sin because that's not who they are. I pray that every single person in here would do some accounting work this week, that they would look in their spiritual bank account and realize that these truths that are too good to be true, God, that we're dead to sin, alive to God in Christ, everything he has is ours. God, would we count that? every single day. And then God, would we present ourselves to you knowing that you're the one that changes us. And as we conform, would we say no to unrighteousness and yes to the righteousness that you've called us to walk in. God, would you do the work? Would you change us from the inside out? You don't wanna just forgive us. You also wanna transform us. So God, I pray that that'd be true for every single person in here who's placed their faith in Jesus. And for those that are on the fence about Jesus, wondering, God, is this, can, can he really change me? God, would you, by the spirit, let them know that that is 100% a reality because Jesus can change anyone. I pray that you would start with us in this room. It's in your son's name that we do pray. Amen.